This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is strategically making a difference. In the first half, Deborah Dean shares her address, Strategic Writing, Strategic Living. Then in the second half, Timothy J. Powers speaks on Prepare to Make a Difference. I'm afraid that if my two oldest granddaughters could see me here today, they'd be a little disappointed. My daughter heard them telling their other grandmother that I worked at BYU, even though she already knew it. When she asked what I did here, they said I took care of the why. Oh, she said, what does she do with it? They told her my job is to protect it and keep it white. I don't know if I could even make the hike up there, so I'm apparently off the job right now. I actually think their grandpa added those extra details in talking to them once, and I think they thought it sounded much more interesting than what I really do, which is teach and write. They know teachers, and although they like their teachers, teaching is not anything special. And about the writing, they know I have books published, but Lauren, the seven-year-old, is writing a book of her own, so no big deal. Actually, Lauren's book fascinates me. First is the title, The Neverlasting Love. That really is a catchy title. When last at my daughter's home, I asked Lauren if I could read her book. It isn't done yet, she said, but she would let me read what she had written so far. She brought me a sheaf of papers numbered from 1 to 15. Her writing stopped at the top of page 11, but the other pages had numbers on them but nothing else written yet. I read her story as far as it went. It's a story of a poor girl named Jess who lives with her parents in a faraway time and place. Jess is a nice girl, and the family is a happy one, except that they don't have any food, except for birthday cake and ice cream. They have interesting daily routines, such as saying goodnight to each other at the end of every day. One day, Jess meets a prince. That's as far as the story went that I got to read. She's finished it, and I think it ends happily ever after. Lauren's story shows what she knows, and it tells us some interesting things about writing and the writing process. Lauren loves Disney movies, especially fairy tales and stories with princes and princesses in them. Her life has routines at bedtime and cake and ice cream for dinner. What Lauren knows and likes finds its way into her story. Probably the most fascinating thing about Law's story is that she already knows how long it's going to be. 15 pages. And that's a lot when you're a six or seven year old writer. It's a lot when you're your age, right? But Lauren isn't intimidated by the length. She works on it a bit at a time when she's able, knowing that it will be done someday. Many years ago, researchers looked at the writing processes of experienced and able writers and compared them to the processes of less experienced or less able writers. Not surprisingly, they found differences. They hypothesized that if less able writers could practice the processes of the more able and experienced writers, those less able writers would become better. They named their findings the writing process, and they labeled certain broad aspects of it, pre-writing, drafting, and revising. You've probably heard something about that before. Within each aspect of the process was a wide range of sub-processes that could occur, but the use of those processes depended on the situation, the task, and the writer. Also, the processes didn't occur in a line. They recurred. That is, writers generally did not complete all the activities that might be labeled pre-writing before they began drafting, or they might revise before they were finished drafting, or they might go back after a draft was complete and do more inquiry or pre-writing activities. The parts of the process weren't sequential. 
Teachers in schools wanted to use these ideas, so they taught a form of the writing process, most often as a line that fit with school and most often not connected to a specific task or situation or writer. In other words, what most of you learned about the writing process probably includes these ideas. We use it for every paper. It's the same for every paper. We start with brainstorming or clustering or free writing. We begin to draft right after our brainstorming. We don't correct our writing while we draft. We share our writing with peers to have them tell us what they think. The understanding of the writing process that seemed to develop in schools was not much like what the original researchers anticipated. And from my experience as a teacher in public schools and as a trainer of teachers, and as someone who works with practicing teachers, and as a mom watching my own children, I can see that this false impression of what the writing process is and how it works has not benefited less experienced writers very much at all. Many students often don't even make use of the writing process to aid them in their writing. In fact, many students, none of you I'm sure, have strained the process by attempting to live up to its supposed principles. They've done their cluster or outline or whatever after they wrote the paper. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> they printed out two copies of the same paper and wrote rough draft on the top of one as evidence that they had used the process. Or they um, printed out two copies and then made crossouts and arrows and scribble marks all over one. So it looked as though they had revised even though they hadn't. They've sat in peer groups and told each other good jobs without even reading the papers and then had a great conversation about prom or the football game or something else more interesting than each other's writings. Am I right? <laughs> the writing process is information about writing that writers can use to help themselves as writers to improve the quality of their written product. It's meant to adapt to each writer's needs in each writing situation. And let's face it, you don't use pre-writing or revising when you text someone, do you? You may use a little editing or revising in an email to a professor, maybe, but you probably don't in an email to a friend. But when you wrote your essays for your application to BYU, you probably went through several drafts and you probably asked other people, teachers, friends, or parents to read it and give you some feedback, feedback that you could choose to use or not. What you know at some level is that the aspects of the writing process are meant to be applied strategically. You already do it to some degree. But maybe you haven't thought about it all the way through yet. Maybe, as my son Joseph told me once, you're still thinking that the writing process is this pointless thing high school teachers made you do. So you've ignored the potential benefits to your current situation as students at university. There might be ways to make the writing process more strategic for you. And there are correlations, I think, between the way we use the writing process and the way we live our lives. Your teachers might have talked about pre-writing as the first stage of writing. Pre-writing is important, but it's much more than brainstorming or clustering. Those are strategies that help you come up with a topic or narrow a topic. And free writing may help you explore what you already know about a topic. But the important thing about pre-writing is inquiry. It's the investigation that's essential to all good writing. If we don't know enough, our writing will never be very good. And writers who know their subject well can write about anything in an interesting way. I read a lot of nonfiction about topics I don't have any particular interest in. Violins, which I don't play. Lobsters, which I don't eat. Salt, which I take for granted. Chicago, which I was going to visit. But the writers knew enough about the topics that they could make them interesting even to someone like me, someone who's just curious. Inquiry is an important part of being a strategic writer. You need to know when you need more information and how to get that information. 
Now, Lauren's writing is a good example of one aspect of inquiry. Some of our inquiry comes from our life experiences. Hers did. She watches Disney movies, reads fairy tales, lives in a family with happy routines. These all came through in her story, and much of our inquiry in some situations comes from our own life experiences. When we give a sacrament meeting talk, when we write in our journals, when we write letters home from our missions. But for some writing, we need to learn more before we are ready to write effectively, so we need to know where to go for that information. We can go to books, certainly. Many of you probably go first to the Internet when you want information, and that can work too. We can talk to people who are knowledgeable about our questions. There are a number of ways to inquire and gain the information we need so that we can write effectively. Knowing that we need to know more, knowing where to go to find out, and knowing how to keep track of what we've learned, these are all parts of being a strategic writer. And it's similar in life. We also have to do the groundwork. Like writing, there are strategies for living well, for living fully, for creating the best life. You know many of them. Pray, read our scriptures, attend our meetings, fast, serve others, be in the right places, obey. We prepare for living in the same way we prepare for writing, by learning what we need to learn and doing what we need to do. In Alma, chapters 48 through 50, Moroni prepares for the possibility of war. We are told that he was not a man of war. Indeed, he was a man that did not delight in bloodshed, that he gloried in doing good, in preserving his people, yea, in keeping the commandments of God, yea, and resisting iniquity. Yet he prepared for war. He used strategies to get the most information he could about both the physical and spiritual aspects of the situation, and he used that information to guide his life. And we all know the kind of man he was, the kind of life he led. Just as in order to write well, we need to know our subject thoroughly, in order to live to our fullest potential, we need knowledge, a wide range of knowledge. Certainly, knowledge of things of the Spirit is part of that. We're constantly encouraged to study our scriptures for that very reason. But the scriptures also tell us to study other subjects as well. Doctrine and Covenants, section 88, verses 79 through 80, says to study things both in heaven and in earth and under the earth, things which have been, things which are, things which must shortly come to pass, things which are at home, things which are abroad, the wars and perplexities of the nations, and the judgments which are on the land, and a knowledge also of countries and of kingdoms, that ye may be prepared in all things when I shall send you again to magnify your calling. Like Moroni, we are admonished later in that same section to prepare ourselves and as part of that preparation to establish a house of learning. Certainly, inquiry and learning are essential to writing, but they are also essential to living fully and being prepared for the Lord's plan to work in our lives. Think how often the learning that we didn't know we would use becomes essential to an assignment or calling we have been given. To live well, we need to learn everything we can and then live close to the Spirit so that Heavenly Father can reveal the specific details of His plan for our lives to us. When they start to write, many writers, like Lauren, think of writing as filling a certain number of pages. When she started, she numbered 15 pages. That's how long her story would be, although it ended up being 17, actually. How many of you, when you're given a writing assignment, first ask how long it's supposed to be? You use the same strategy as Lauren. You think to fill a set number of pages, the fewer the better. But life isn't like that. Life is about filling all the time that we are blessed with. And how we fill those pages of our life matters. How we fill those days and years will create a product that has nothing to do with length and everything to do with quality. Living strategically means making sure our life's time is meaningful, not fluff. 
When we start to write, knowing how to shape our writing for the situation is also part of being strategic. If you haven't found out already, you will soon enough, that good writing isn't always the same. Good writing in psychology isn't the same as good writing in history or good writing in economics. Each discipline has its own way of gathering and presenting information. Beyond school, that same thing is true. A letter to the editor isn't the same as a letter asking for a job interview. Part of being a strategic writer means figuring out the appropriate shape and expectations for each writing situation. Where current research in writing theory has focused on this social aspect of writing, what theorists call genre theory. Some genre theorists claim that the only way to write well in a situation is to be part of that situation, and they claim that we learn by assimilating the ways the knowledgeable people in a situation write. So we need to learn to ask questions, to observe, and to read widely and carefully in each situation in order to find out how to shape writing as we draft. In a similar way, we often draft our lives by observing and imitating the lives of those around us and by following the examples we see in those lives. I have three three-year-old grandchildren. They are wonderful children, fantastic, actually. But when two of them get together, they remind me of thing one and thing two in the cat in the hat. They encourage each other to higher and higher levels of silliness, and they remind me how important the influence of the people around us can be. Do we place ourselves in the best places to choose examples that will shape our lives in the way we want them to be? Do we have as friends and associates people we would want to be like, people who help us become our best selves? We are blessed to live in a time and place where we have the prophet and apostles and other Church leaders on our television screens, if not in our Church meetings or devotionals, on a regular basis. We have examples of other prophets in the scriptures and, of course, the scriptures also give us the example of the perfect model, Jesus Christ. How much advantage do we take of these opportunities to shape our lives after these wonderful examples, to learn to think and act and believe as they do? When he was in junior high, my youngest son spent one evening working on a poster that was part of an oral presentation for his English class. As I drove him to school the next morning, I glanced into the back seat of the car looking for the poster. When I didn't see it, I asked him where it was, thinking that he'd left it at home. He replied that it was in his backpack. In your backpack? I was astounded. How? He made folding motions with his hands. Folded? It will be a mess for your presentation. He shrugged. Other kids fold theirs. I asked him, the kids who get A's? No. The kids who get B's? No. The kids who get C's? No. So you model yourself after the students who get D's and F's. Now, he got out of the car at that point. But for Joseph, it was really a matter of being cool. As far as he could see, cool junior high kids in Washington didn't walk into school carrying their posters protected from the rain in large plastic bags. But the point for me was who he was choosing for his models. President Monson, in his recent First Presidency message, noted the same thing. All of us need points of reference, even models to follow. I look to models of writing to learn how to shape my own writing. I am living strategically if I make sure that I have good models around me and if I make sure that I consciously try to pattern my life after them. If I choose good models and work at following their examples, then I have hope of earning the kind of life that will be appropriate for the situation I want for eternity, a life with my Heavenly Father. For some writing, we don't have to worry about much but just getting it something down on paper or on the screen. I've mentioned text messages and emails. Much of the writing we do—notes, lists, applications—is just getting something down. 
There isn't a lot of pre-writing or inquiry, except the kind that comes from living. And there isn't really a need for revision. But sometimes our writing needs revision, and there are strategies for that, too. We can have others look at our writing and give us feedback. If these people care about us, they will be honest but kind so that they help us become better writers. We can compare our writing against standards, such as grading criteria or models of similar kinds of writing. We can read our writing out loud to ourselves to hear how it sounds. These are just a few of the ways that we can find out what needs to be improved in our writing. Now, I'll be the first to admit that revising is hard and feedback can be tough. Last fall, I was working on a manuscript for a book that summarized and interpreted new theory so that teachers could use it in schools. I had a contract for the book, but the editor was not entirely happy with the initial full draft. He wanted it revised for audience and tone. When I had written the early drafts, I had cared too much about my secondary audience, the theorists themselves, and not enough about my primary audience, teachers. He was right, the tone was wrong, and I needed to revise. I had a good friend and colleague, Penny Bird, read the manuscript. She came to my office, confirmed the editor's evaluation, and suggested some possibilities for my revision. I rearranged some parts of the text and gave her another draft. Again, she didn't think it worked. We went through this routine several times, each time with Penny asking me important questions about the subject and about what I was trying to do. Finally, after she left one day, I sat down in front of the computer. I had wrestled and wrestled with this text, moving parts around, rephrasing a sentence or paragraph here and there, thinking of teachers more, but I still didn't have something I could send to the editor. It wasn't working. As I sat there with the latest version on the screen, I realized I was going to have to do what I had been avoiding. I was going to have to do what I told my students' revision really was. It is reseeing. I had to start over again. After all that work, I opened a blank screen and I started writing. That manuscript will be published in March. My youngest sons used to hate revising their papers. Paul used to ask, why can't you see everything I need to change the first time you look at it? <laughs> Instead, I would make suggestions, he'd make changes, I'd make more suggestions for revising the next draft, and so on. I told him it isn't easy to see everything at once. When we change one thing, we're able to see what we couldn't before. Thus, revision isn't always easy or fast. When our oldest son, Michael, was getting ready to be baptized, we had a family home evening lesson about baptism and the covenants involved. I had cut footprints, more like shoe prints, out of construction paper and placed them across the floor as though someone had walked there. As we had the lesson, we explained to our children, although only Michael and Amy were able to understand fully, that baptism was a promise to follow in the Savior's footsteps. I encouraged them to walk in the footsteps as a way to show that promise. As they practiced, they noticed that sometimes they stepped to the side of the footprint instead of directly on it. When I told them that we have to try to be exactly like him, I'll never forget their response. They looked at each other, clutched each other's hands, and said, What if we don't? They looked ready to cry. What if we step outside? I explained that when that happens, we can repent, to which they said, Phew! Looked at each other and repeated with joy, We can repent! Repentance and revision have much in common. When they revise writing, strategic writers know that they aren't just making cosmetic changes. They know that revision, at its core, reshapes and reconstructs the writing. Revision in life, repentance, isn't always easy either. Repentance isn't about simply rearranging surface features of our lives. It's supposed to change us, to change our natures. 
Alma asked the Nephites, And now, behold, I ask of you, my brethren of the Church, have ye spiritually been born of God? Have ye received his image in your countenances? Have ye experienced this mighty change in your hearts? Like effective revision, repentance isn't done at once either. Like my son's papers, sometimes as we remove one level of the natural man, we find other levels that we might not have noticed before. We refine ourselves, seeing more and more detail as we revise our lives. Elder Bednar, in his most recent conference address, pointed out that becoming the kind of person we want to become, the kind of person who will live again with our Heavenly Father, doesn't happen in one revision either. Small, steady, incremental spiritual improvements are the steps the Lord would have us take. Preparing to walk guiltless before God is one of the primary purposes of mortality and the pursuit of a lifetime. It does not result from sporadic spurts of intense spiritual activity. In other words, it is a process, one that cannot be shortchanged. In writing, part of our revision occurs when we compare our writing against standards or grading criteria. In comparing, we know what we need to change in order to meet those standards or criteria. In living strategically, we do the same thing. We go to temple recommend interviews so that we can regularly check ourselves against a standard. We listen to and follow a prophet using his example as a standard. We read our scriptures so that we can see the perfect example of right living, the Savior, and then we make corrections as they are needed. I am a writer who mostly uses what we know about the writing process strategically. I write lists, emails, letters of recommendation, lesson plans, articles, and books, and I can do it because I know how to use the writing plan effectively. Heavenly Father has given us a plan for living that's meant to help us succeed in life. His plan isn't one that will necessarily tell us whether we should eat corn or green beans for dinner or which shoes to wear with a certain outfit, but it is one that can help us make the important right choices in our lives if we let it. Like the writing process, it isn't a plan that's there imposed on us. It's there for us to choose to use it in order to make the best use of our life's options. When our son Paul was young, I bought him antiperspirant for the first time. I tossed it to him and went into the kitchen to put the rest of the groceries away. Several minutes later, I passed him in the hall. It was summer. He had on shorts but no shirt. Across his forehead, down his cheeks, down his chest, and down his arms were stripes of white. He looked like a warrior going into a battle. When I asked him what he'd put on himself, he said it was the antiperspirant. He figured if it stopped perspiration, he should put it wherever he sweat. It was logical but it was also funny. And over the years since then, we've told this story many times. For our family, it is a reminder that true principles should be applied liberally. That's how I think a comparison to the writing process can apply to our living processes. I know Heavenly Father's plan for us can get us where He wants us to be in this life and in the next, if we use it in the way we are supposed to. His plan is a process, a plan of growth. I hope we don't use it the way we sometimes use the writing process, skimping on the details of the process and thinking that it's good enough. I hope we don't start with a page limit in mind, a kind of boundary that doesn't allow Heavenly Father's plan for us to work. I hope we know that we have to put in the groundwork with our own effort and learning. I hope we know that there are examples out there for us to follow so that we don't have to draft blindly. And I hope we know that we can revise our lives when we aren't doing what's right, aren't making the best decisions. With His plan, what is offered is worth a lot more than what we get when we write. 
So we should use the plan that much more effectively than we use the writing process. The final draft will be well worth it. I know that. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is Strategically Making a Difference. We've just heard from Deborah Dean. After the break, we'll return with Timothy J. Powers for Prepare to Make a Difference. This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is strategically making a difference. Next is Timothy J. Powers, coach of the BYU men's swim team at the time of this address, titled Prepare to Make a Difference. Today as I stand here before you, I'm humbled by the invitation to share my thoughts and bear my testimony of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It has been mentioned that I am in my 31st year here at Brigham Young University, and I can truly say that this opportunity to address you today has never been on my radar screen. Indeed, I have sat comfortably in the audience for more than three decades now and have never ceased to be inspired each week by the music and the spoken word. First, let me tell you, marvelous students, how odd I am to be in your presence. Do you know who you are? You come to this university from all 50 states and from 120 countries around the world. You come from big cities and small towns, from farms and foreign capitals. 75% of the young men and 12% of the young women have served missions throughout the world for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Almost three-quarters of this student body speak fluently a language other than English. You are literally an army of God, and that most of you have given two years of your life to preach, teach, testify, and expound on the life and the mission of the only begotten, of the Father, the Redeemer of the world, the Lamb of God, and our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ. You have given freely of your time, energy, talents, and resources to declare to the world that He lives. You are as bright and talented as any students we have ever had at this university. Your college boards and your grade point averages rank you among the best college students on any campus in America. Year after year, you place BYU in the top ten universities in the land for students to go on to obtain advanced degrees. You are highly sought after by recruiters in science and industry. You later become our bishops and stake presidents, our Relief Society and young women's presidents. You are schooled in the gospel of Jesus Christ and His image is in your countenance. You are obedient to the laws and the commandments of our Father in heaven. You have exercised faith in the redemption of Him who created you and experienced the change of heart. You have felt to sing the song of redeeming love, and like Alma, I would ask, can you feel so now? In 1997, while building a deck on my home, I received a call from a stake president who resides in Argentina. He had dropped by the athletic department and wanted to visit with me about our swimming program and the possibility of athletic scholarships for swimmers from his stake. I told him that I was quite dirty from the construction project that I was working on, but if he would come by to my home on Sunday, I'd be glad to visit with him. When he arrived, he brought with him a young former bishop from his stake 
was at that time doing graduate work at BYU and was to act as his translator. A few days earlier, we had participated in a celebration of the sesquicentennial arrival of the Saints into Utah. The celebration took part in what is now Lavelle Edwards Stadium, and President Hinckley was in attendance and spoke to us. At the end of the evening, all the missionaries from the MTC marched into the stadium. It was an electrifying moment for all of us as we realized that we have enough missionaries around the world to fill that stadium. As I asked my visitors if they had been able to attend the celebration, the young bishop responded that it was a direct fulfillment of his patriarchal blessing. He stated that his blessing received many years earlier, had specified that he would study abroad, and that he would behold an army of God. As the missionaries marched in, he realized that specific blessing had been fulfilled. Brothers and sisters, you are, in a very real sense, a part of that same army of God. Have you wondered why the Lord, through his appointed leaders, would set aside the sacred offerings of the faithful members of the Church, indeed, the widow's might, to provide each of you with an opportunity to grow intellectually and spiritually while creating a sanctuary where you can develop and nurture your talents, all the while being taught and tutored at the feet of apostles and prophets? You have been given much, and the Lord expects you to be stripling warriors, as were the sons of Helaman. There has never been a time in our history where you were needed more. I am convinced that you have been held in reserve for this very time when your talents, abilities, and testimonies are most needed on the earth. You can truly make a difference to this generation and greatly affect generations to come. For some of you, it will be on a public stage, and for others it will be in quiet settings where your personal influence, kind word, or example is most needed. You will be called on to raise a righteous generation, and you will draw on the powers of heaven in your efforts to overcome the world. Your greatest challenge will not be persecution or the cold, bleak conditions your ancestors faced, but yours will be the challenge of success and affluence. While you are here, I hope that you will take every opportunity to match your spiritual growth and knowledge with your intellectual development. Our libraries on this campus hold millions of volumes of the collected knowledge of the civilized world. Our faculty will guide you in how to apply this knowledge to your chosen field, and the Spirit will give you the wisdom to use these tools in serving your fellow man. Since my expertise is in coaching and mentoring young athletes, I am sometimes asked by faculty members and colleagues about what role athletics or being a member of the swimming and diving team plays in this university setting and what gospel principles are learned that are preparing students for challenges that face this generation. Let me try to answer this question for you. It is my experience that being a swimmer on a highly competitive team runs counter to popular culture. In a world of instant gratification and shortcuts, swimmers have to work first and wait for the results. Success comes only after the work has been done. As we compete, weaknesses in body or technique become apparent, and through hard work and diligence, these weaknesses become strengths. You must challenge yourself daily to be the best that you can be. Constant effort yields to perfection in the skill and a glimpse of the capacity our Father in Heaven has endowed us with. Trust and coachability are akin to faith and obedience, and when tested, you are prepared 
and your confidence waxes strong. Setbacks or defeats, like victories, are never a permanent condition, but rather an opportunity to gather more information to help you meet oncoming challenges. Having completed the experience, you are ready to lead and to be led or to use your skills to bless others. I've always felt that my swimmers are stripling warriors. Yearly we watch them with excitement as they receive their mission calls and march forward in faith to bring the gospel message to the world. I love these young men as they return to our team. They have grown in their love for the Savior and for their fellow man. They have spent two years thinking about everyone but themselves. They know how to put their arm around a young freshman who is away from home for the first time and offer reassurance and love. We are a missionary team, and I feel that is our greatest strength. Today, I will introduce you to three former Brigham Young University swimmers who are setting examples and influencing others by how they live their lives. The first Cougar swimmer is Lieutenant Colonel Gary Reynolds. Gary has served as a bishop and a branch president as a navigator on a C-130 aircraft that has been equipped for special operations and provides fire support for Army Special Forces units engaged in combat. When he showed up on the pool deck last summer during our swim camps, he told me that his experience here at BYU had made all the difference in his life. He wanted me to have this coin. It is carried by each member of his unit, each and every day, to remind them who they are and what they are about. Gary's crew has served two tours in Iraq and two tours in Afghanistan. Although stationed in Florida, they have supported the 5th and 19th Army Special Forces groups and provided life-saving cover for these heroic soldiers. Some of you here today may have fathers or other relatives that served in the 19th Special Forces. They are home-based in Utah. Many of our local servicemen may indeed owe their lives to the fire support Gary's plane has provided. This coin is based on Ephesians 6, 11 through 18, which reads, Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand the evil day. And having done all to stand, stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, take in the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked, and take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Praying always with all prayer and supplication for all saints. I was deeply touched by this unit's commitment to live righteous lives, that they might be an effective tool in defending our country. Gary served his mission in Hong Kong and has served in the U.S. Air Force now for more than 20 years. Gary is still being an influence for good. The second former swimmer I want to introduce to you is Billy Betts. Billy was named National Swimmer of the Week during his senior year, but has excelled much more outside the pool in his service to others. Bill served his mission in El Paso, Texas, and upon returning home felt that his service wasn't over, but that it was just beginning. 
He was excited about giving Christ-like service and reaching out to those in need. His first summer after his mission, he spent in El Salvador working at a small medical clinic, suturing wounds, and helping to deliver babies. He was struck by the total lack of basic medical supplies and the enormous need in the local villages. Bill has always had a can-do attitude and used this challenge as an opportunity to make a difference. Bill returned home and began visiting doctors in Provo, Salt Lake City, and in Logan in an effort to gain the needed medical supplies. After buying an old van with holes in the floorboards, he and his friend drove the eight days to El Salvador to deliver the much-needed supplies. The van overheat break down many times along the way. Finally, after much prayer, the heavens opened and the cooling rain made their delivery possible. They were able to inoculate hundreds of children and bring much-needed medicine and supplies to these humble villagers. The following year, Billy had two semi-trucks, truckloads to deliver, this time loaded with an x-ray machine, mammography machine, hospital beds, and much more. What a blessing Billy and his friends have been to the people of El Salvador. During his senior year, Bill heard of a village that had been flooded in Mexico and organized a relief effort with a number of his friends. They collected clothing and food and with a good number of trucks and trailers delivered the much-needed supplies to this ravaged town. Bill and his bride, Amy, are now living in Southern California where he teaches early morning seminary. Criterion for the corporate position that he ultimately took was that he would have the time he needed to continue to make a difference. Billy took seriously the parable of the sheep and the goats as taught by Jesus and recorded in Matthew 25, 34-40. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come, ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundations of the world. For I was in hunger, and ye gave me meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me in, naked, and ye clothed me. I was sick, and ye came unto me. Then shall the righteous answer him, saying, Lord, when saw thee a stranger, and took thee in, or naked, and clothed thee? And the king shall answer, and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as ye have done it unto the least of these, my brethren, ye have done it unto me. Bill's service grew national and international attention. He became the first recipient ever of the Coca-Cola All-American Service Award and the John Wooden Cup, representing athletes for a better world. When I was in Southern California for the presentation of the Wooden Cup, Bill asked me to come and bear my testimony to his 6 a.m. seminary class. Not one of his students knew that Bill had been a champion athlete or that he was the recipient of the most prestigious service awards in athletics. Bill didn't need hoopla. His service and the knowledge that his offering was accepted by the Lord were all the accolades that he needed. The last former swimmer that I wish to highlight for you this morning is Richard Barnes. Richard is an attorney in Salt Lake City and swam on our Western Athletic Conference Championship team in 1996, where he was an all-conference performer. He served in the Micronesia Guam mission. Some of you may have followed his story on the local news this summer. He and his brother David, an emergency room physician, were attempting to become the first ever swimmers from the state of Utah to swim the English Channel. Please watch the video screens as we play a short 
clip about their quest. Well, we've been watching this story with great interest for a week. Two brothers making the swim of their lives. And now Richard Barnes has become the first Utah to swim across the English Channel. However, his older brother David also attempted the swim, but he couldn't finish because of nausea and the early stages of hypothermia. ABC 4's Brent Hansecker and photographer Aaron Gee were on the boats following the swimmers, and they bring the story close to home. I have been witness to, at least in my opinion, one of the most incredible tests of endurance. Yesterday morning before dawn, two brothers take off from the White Cliffs of Dover at Shakespeare Beach. They're headed across the English Channel. David gets a kiss good luck from his wife, Heather. And both swimmers are coated in channel grease, a thick goop that's supposed to prevent chafing and protect them from the cold. Three, two, one, go. 3.30 in the morning, David and Richard Barnes start their swim together. They are. Their plan is to stay together all the way to France. But the boat captains believe it is unsafe, so they keep their distance, forcing the brothers to separate. Spotlights would blind the swimmers, so they're tracked through the darkness using glow sticks attached to their swimsuits. On the hour, for the first three hours, the support teams on each boat give the swimmers drink and food. Usually it's hot chocolate and peaches. Occasionally they ask for candy. The feeding went good. David feels good. The two boats are so far apart now that they can barely see each other on the horizon. Just after the 4.30 mark in the swim, there's trouble. David Barnes is starting to zigzag. His stroke is still strong, but less effective in the increasing swells. You wondered just a couple of times. I was a little bit concerned, so you're all right, are you? A little bit cold, I guess. You're cold, are you? Worse still, he has gulped water instead of air several times and is now complaining of nausea. From now on, the pauses are erratic, more frequent. Yeah, okay. You've done more than what 60% of swimmers do, David. Keep going, Six hours into the swim and past the halfway point, David admits it's time to get out. Are you sure? It is a hard decision that once made brings a flood of emotions to everyone on board. David is cold, suffering from what may be the early stages of hypothermia. He is also exhausted physically and emotionally. So Richard swims on. Strong, hanging in there. Come on, let's go! 16 hours and 43 minutes after beginning the swim. He's standing up. He's standing up! Richard is on land. In France, he has made it across the English Channel. Oh, I love you. Thank you, guys. Close to midnight, Richard's boat finally returns to Folkestone Harbor. And there waiting for him is his brother David. They are the first to embrace as the boat docks. For those that would say that Richard is the winner and David a gracious loser, I would say that you do not know the Barnes brothers. They are a team. They trained together. They wanted to compete together. This was not a competition of brother versus brother, but a competition of brothers against the sea. And in this case, both of them, our winners. Richard, by the way, put on 25 pounds for that swim. You need that protection when you're swimming the English Channel. Since their swims, Richard and David have been in demand for youth firesides. One of the things that Richard is quick to point out is that the Channel swim didn't start at Shakespeare Beach. 
In reality, it started many years before in developing the work ethic and dealing with the demands of being a competitive distance swimmer. While here at BYU, Richard Daly swam the equivalent of a marathon. That means four hours a day with heart rates in excess of 150 beats per minute. Later, as he and his brother prepared for the Mount Everest of swims, it meant putting their bodies into Jordan L or Deer Creek Reservoir in the month of May when the water was 55 degrees and swimming for six hours. That would be enough to put most of us off. This was done in addition to their regular training so that they could prepare for the 60-degree temperatures they would face in the waters off England. In fact, the Channel Swimming Association will not allow swimmers to attempt the crossing unless they have proven the ability to withstand at least six hours of swimming in such frigid water. They are allowed to wear a Speedo, a pair of goggles, and use some channel grease, which is a mixture of petroleum, jelly, and lanolin, and aids in reducing the kind of chafe that rubs you raw around your neck and armpits. By the time they pushed off the shore at Shakespeare Beach at 3.30 a.m., they had prepared as though their lives literally depended upon it. The sacrifice of time and training had taken place. Airline tickets purchased. Boats and support teams were standing by. Prayers were offered. And I submit their confidence waxed strong in the face of the task before them because they had paid the price. Elder Henry B. Irene spoke in the General Conference of the Church just a few weeks ago about spiritual preparedness and said, quote, What we will need in our day of testing is a spiritual preparation. It is to have developed faith in Jesus Christ so powerful that we can pass the test of life upon which everything for us in eternity depends, close quote. He went on to say that, quote, learning to start early and to be steady are the keys to spiritual preparation. Procrastination and inconsistency are its mortal enemies, close quote. Richard and David know about such preparation. In the priesthood session of the same conference, Elder David A. Bednar spoke of preparation as well. In giving counsel to young men about preparing for missions, Elder Bednar stated, quote, My dear young brethren, the single most important thing you can do to prepare for a call to serve is to become a missionary long before you go on your mission, close quote. Richard and David are swimmers. They have grown up as swimmers. And it is woven into the fabric of their lives, much like the gospel of Jesus Christ is part and parcel of who we are. Can you imagine them heading out to sea with no training and no preparation? Can you imagine Richard swimming for 16 hours and 45 minutes, fighting currents, tides, hypothermia, and discouragement, his swim covering 36 miles of wind-tossed sea, his rest only to take nourishment while treading water, without any kind of preparation? My swimmers have come to know that you can spend all night on your knees asking the Lord to help you with a test or a swim race, but He expects you to prepare and to do your part. Think of the counsel the Lord gives to Oliver Cowdery through the prophet Joseph Smith in Doctrine and Covenants 9, verse 7, which reads, Behold, you have not understood. You have supposed that I would give it unto you when you took no thought, save it was to ask me. Richard, in becoming the first person in the state of Utah to successfully swim the English Channel, could not do it alone. His wife, Darcy, afforded him time away from his family to train and was willing to commit family resources because she believed in her husband. 
she was on board in every sense of the word. She was there along with his brother John, offering encouragement and reassurance. Richard's brother Dave, whose dream it was to swim the channel, trained by his side month after month. Although he finally succumbed to hypothermia and had to abandon the attempt, it must be noted that Richard's victory over the channel would not have happened if it had not been for his brother Dave. This is always the case. We can always accomplish much more together than we can alone. Let us look for ways to strengthen our brothers and sisters, and we will all rejoice together as the Barnes family has. I've been asked by many if I was surprised that Richard was able to conquer the English Channel. My answer is no. Richard Barnes knows how to set a goal and keep his eye on it. I have watched him work towards goals for many years and know of his willingness to put in the work and not become discouraged when at first he hasn't succeeded. There were occasions during the swim when Richard would swim for hours without progressing towards the opposite shore. This can often be the case in life. Richard shared with me that at the three-hour mark, he was quite discouraged from breathing diesel fumes and being tossed about by the waves. His stomach finally gave out, and he threw up violently. He thought for a second that, that this was surely the end. His brother John calmly looked at him and said, Take your time. His calmness reassured Richard, and in a minute or so later, Richard began swimming anew and thus began the best portion of his entire swim. A well-placed word of encouragement can make all the difference. As a former bishop and in my coaching, I counsel ward members and my swimmers to make their plans and dreams big enough to include the Lord. Richard Barnes has done just that. I would relate to you many of the insights that Richard has shared with me about gospel principles that took on new meaning during this life-altering swim, but I will leave that to him. I think he has earned the right to share what he has learned through his labors. I mentioned that this swim was the Mount Everest of swims. Mount Everest has been conquered by approximately 1,500 climbers and is the pinnacle of mountaineering. The English Channel has recorded only 680 swimmers to accomplish its crossing since its first successful attempt in the 1880s. It gives me great satisfaction to know that the first person from Utah to have his name recorded among the great long-distance swimmers is a former Cougar swimmer and a BYU graduate. Finally, brothers and sisters, I cannot let this opportunity pass without adding my testimony that Jesus is the Christ. He lives. I know this truth with every fiber of my being. We are His, bought with a price. Through Him, all things are possible. He is Alpha and Omega, the Prince of Peace, the Good Shepherd, and the Messiah. He loves you and me. I would not be here today if it wasn't for my beautiful wife, Patsy, who is seated here on the stand. She is the love of my life and introduced me to the gospel of Jesus Christ. She exemplifies the gospel in action. She inspires me to strive to be the best priesthood holder I can be. Early on, she brought the Lord into our relationship, and that has made all the difference in our marriage and in my life. She looks for opportunities to serve our neighbors. She is sensitive to the needs of others. Isn't that what the Lord has asked us to do? It's my prayer that while you are here at Brigham Young University, you will grow intellectually and spiritually that you will sharpen your gospel skills and increase your testimony through service in student wards and associations. 
Continue to be disciples of Jesus Christ and examples of the true believers, as described in Acts 2, 41 and 2. Then they gladly received his word and were baptized. And the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and the breaking of bread and prayers. If you will do this, the Lord will have in you a mighty force for good. Then you will be prepared to make the difference. I say this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was Strategically Making a Difference, with thoughts from Deborah Dean and Timothy J. Powers. Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org slash findingcenter. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.